Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'll your host today. Just continue a series in uh, the 13 Attributes of Divine Mercy. And so those 13 attributes are listed in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So let's review that. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what we're going to talk about today, and probably for about three weeks, this is a mini-series of its own because it's one of the most important concepts, not only in Judaism, but in understanding Christianity, to be honest with you, is this idea of steadfast love. The Hebrew word for that is hesed. And hesed is um, the essentially the most important concept in all of Judaism. It's the concept, they say, that relates to creation. They say that, that there are multiple... Mm, I'm not sure exactly how to say this or get at it. It's called the Sephirot. We'll talk about that in the next um, session of this. But the, there, are, there are 10. And so the fourth Sephirot is Hesed, uh, this loving kindness, steadfast love, that idea. And it's fourth, but it's really first. <laughs> it sounds funny to say it that way, but the, the way they look at it is, is that, that first, the first three... Sephirot are intellectual. They're all in, in the mind of God, if you can say it that way, if it's you know knowing that God is not a physical being the way we are, and he's, but, but he's not just a mind either. And that's an important thing to, to kind of bring into this. But, but it's the, the, the concepts of creation, what will creation be? All the ideas that relate to, con- to creation are in God's mind. And then Hesed is the act of creation. And so it is loving kindness, steadfast love. And so it shapes, if you think about it that way, it shapes the way that you think about everything in life. And so it's an important concept just from that standpoint alone. But they say it's the act of creation. So it moves from mind and idea into being, and it brings things into being. So it's in, in that way, it's a first principle because there's nothing prior to that principle. And so it's important because it doesn't rest on anything else. Everything else after that is a secondary principle because there's something now. Before there was nothing, now there's something. And so Hesed, God created the world in love. That's an important concept. And I think sometimes uh, we miss that as Christians, we, we miss that as Christians, but then the rest of the world misses it. It's a unique, actually, principle and concept to Christianity, and I think we, we don't make enough of that. We don't think seriously about it or deeply enough about it. In fact, most of the time, we don't think about it at all. But why did God create the world? And so the answer to that is God created it out of loving kindness because He is a loving God, but He was in a Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but then there needed to be a physical manifestation of that, and creation was the physical manifestation of that. And then so that God could could bestow His love, not just on creation generically, but on something in creation who could fully receive and fully respond to that love. And so mankind was created in the image of God so that we can then begin to respond to God's love, to receive it, to appreciate it. And we can we are the objects, 
for which creation happened. And, it, and it's so that we could know the love of the Creator. And so there was a, uh, the, the motivation for the action of creation is all based in this idea of hesed, this loving kindness of God. The loving kindness needed at some level a further outlet. There needed to be something in, in the world, which didn't exist, that there needed to be something that, that could receive God's love. There was this overflow excess that had to go somewhere. And so God made the earth. And then he created man in his own image, and he gave man stewardship over his creation. So the ones created in his image are in charge of his creation, and, and we're supposed to do that as though we were doing it for him, as though he did it himself. So how would God care for creation? But that begins with loving creation. It begins with loving everything about creation. But it, there's a prior love than that at some level because of Hesed, because of that being the first principle in the universe, that we, we don't love creation first, we love God first. And I think that's where sometimes we get that wrong. When, when we care about the earth, we can become environmentalists, and that's not a bad word. In some parts of Christianity, we run from that and hide from that because, because it becomes love of Mother Earth above Father God. And so we have to keep those two things straight, and we have to keep them in order. We have to love Him first and then love His creation. And we love His creation first because He loves it, and second because we're supposed to love what God loves. So we're supposed to appreciate what God appreciates. But the first thing that you run into is fallenness, right? I mean, so it's impossible to wake up in the morning and go about the course of your day and not encounter the fallenness of the earth, the fallenness of creation. And again, Christianity is unique in, in the idea that a good and loving God created the world. If you read the creation myths of, of pretty much any other religion, what, you, what you'll come across is there's a reason create, that the creation, the created order that we live in is a mess, and that's because the gods that created it are a mess. Uh, they fight among themselves. They, they didn't have some great glorious plan for uh, creation itself. There was just something that occurred someplace, and so God particularly loves that place and then it goes, or God or gods, whichever it is in, in a particular religion, and it sort of expands out from there. That's not the way Genesis 1 talks about God creating the world. In fact, every time he creates something, he said it was good. And he didn't say it was good in Egypt along the Nile. He didn't say it was good in Mesopotamia. He said all of it was good. Every single thing that he created not just the land, not just the this, not just the that. No, he, everything he created was good, but everything is less than him. There are no other gods besides him. And so when he creates the sun and the moon in Genesis 1, what you don't see is God created the sun and the moon. He created the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the reason that those aren't specified in that way, it's not called the sun and the moon, is because there are places where those two things were in fact themselves worshipped and glorified as deities. And so they're in, in our world, they're just the greater light and the lesser light, and they were created by God. All these things came into being because of him. And each day he said, this is good, except for the last day when he's finished with his creation, after the creation of humankind, he says, it's very good. Well, 
<clears throat> it's important to recognize in all that this this idea of hesed because God created all of this, all the world, everything in it out of love. And so it, it's not like that in other religions. I mean, we could look at them and and, and there'll be another series where we do look at other creation stories and you can see this dramatic difference. You've got this, this whole group of gods who don't really get along with one another and, and their personalities are basically no more than human personalities. They have the same sexual hangups. They have the same irritations and angers and everything else. And so it's just sort of human beings blown up into larger status is what you get in, in many religions. In others, some of the creation stories are very strange. The Egyptian story is quite strange. The um, Japanese story is also quite strange. We'll, we'll look at some of those in another series. And I think you'll enjoy looking at those. But mostly what you'll enjoy is the distinction between this and that. The, the, um, what you get in a lot of creation stories is bad gods created this earth. Whether it's the God who created it is an emanation from a greater God, from a greater God, from a greater God, from a greater God. And so essentially what it is, you've got fallen gods. And so by the time you get to the God who created all of this, they discover that God is evil. The, the others you come about the idea of why is the world such a messy place? Because everybody knows. I mean, you start from that premise, right? When you when you do a creation story, you start from the premise of, of this isn't how things really ought to be. <clears throat> Nobody thinks this is right. We all recognize from our, even our humanness, we look and say, it's a mess. And then all those other creation stories tell you why that is. And, and it's because, well, the gods didn't really have a great plan or they needed a place to fight their little petty battles or there, there were so many gods in charge of things that, that it, and who didn't like each other very well. Or, so you get a mess that way. And so, but it all starts with the idea of, yeah, the world's a mess. And I can see how you would come to the conclusion that whoever created this world, whatever God created this world, was pretty much a mess himself and didn't have a good plan, didn't have a good plan for humankind. Because you look at this and you say, well, who would have ever created something that's a big mess like this? And that's a legitimate question. And, and so the Christian story, the Judeo-Christian story in Genesis 1, 2, and forward, tells you why. And Genesis 3 gives the answer. So everything's good, Genesis 1 and 2. And then something happens in Genesis 3 that destroys everything that was good and perfect. And that one thing is sin and the part of creation that, that is the cause, the one who sinned, isn't an animal. It's not some other lower form of being. It's us. And the Judeo-Christian story is unique in citing the problem, not in the heavens, but on earth. And it starts with us, those who were created in God's image. We are the only ones who actually had the power to do that because we're created in His image. We blew it right from the start. So um, the idea in Judaism, and I love this idea, is, is that every soul, when it dies, passes through the cave where Adam and Eve are. And so they pass through the cave, and Adam is there, and every person passes along, looks at Adam, shakes his head, clucks his tongue, and essentially is saying, you are the problem in the world. And Adam looks at every soul and says, nope, nope. I sinned, and therefore I'm here. You sinned, therefore you're here. You could have done better, but you didn't. Now, 
in in much of Christianity, we look at it in a, in a little different way because we do see that sin becomes part of the human condition with Adam. That in in Adam all fall, as Paul will say, and then in in Jesus, the new Adam. We're all restored, and, and we are made new creations in Jesus. Sometimes I look at my own life, and I wonder, was I really, have I really been made a new creation? Because I seem to be subject to so many of the same problems and so many of the same uh, desires and passions and um, foibles that I had before. But what I have to recognize all the time is that I've been given power in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome those things. Um, but so we are new creations because in, in the same way that God breathed life into Adam and breathed a different kind of soul into Adam than he breathed into the animals prior to that, that, that we now, when what was the first thing Jesus does when he comes among his disciples in John's gospel, the first time that he comes to them, they're afraid, right? They're, they're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Jesus shows up. We know Thomas is not there. Everybody else is there. They're afraid. And Jesus says, shalom, peace. My shalom I give you. And then he breathes on them. That is pointing us back to the first part of creation where God breathes life into that which he's formed from the dust of the earth, from all the sort of leftover stuff of the creation of the universe, the dust that's on the ground. God scoops up some of that leftover creation dust forms it into something like a potter would do, and then breathes life into it, and it becomes a living being created in his image. There's a care in scooping that dust up and forming that with his hands, a care that's not there in any other part of creation. So even though, yes, we are created from the dust of the earth, we, are, we were created with, with very specific care when God does this, and then he breathes life into it. And then later reminds us that from dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. But we're more than that. We have this immortal, eternal soul that will continue on forever in one form, fashion, or another. And so, but it's all based in God's love. And so God loves that which he has created in his image in such a way that we are, in that way, we, we have a soul that extends into eternity. Because it would be like God killing a part of himself, for us to be annihilated and gone forever and because he put something of himself into us in in multiple ways and if we look back at that what i told you at the beginning is that 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 intellect all that stuff comes first and then action comes later so when god picked up that dust and began dust and began to form it right so there's already a plan of action in his mind he's already thought this out he knows what this end result is going to be and and then he takes the action the hesed is the formation. And then he loved the thing that he created so much that he breathed himself into that creation. That's the kind of loving kindness that we're talking about here is that, that intentionality of God. And then what he did, he loved so much and valued so much that he poured himself into it and then gave that thing that he formed out of the dust of the earth charge stewardship over the rest of what all he had created. I, I don't know about you, but, but I, w I don't give people charge over my stuff unless I know them well and love them and, and trust them. And so that's what God did, is, is that he gave it into our hands, knowing from the very beginning what we were going to do, who we were going to be.
and what we were going to make of his creation. He trusted us anyway. And so I believe that's a huge chunk of the reason that Jesus comes. But, but everything didn't wait until Jesus came for, for God to have a people that he trusted and he gave care over a portion of the earth. And that's the Jewish people. And they're given care of another garden a garden that he's created for them, a garden called the land, and he's going to drive out everybody else whose sin has polluted the land over the last couple thousand years. He's going to drive them out, and the people that he's now making a kingdom of priests and servants to him are coming, and they're going to take over this land flowing with milk and honey. And, and the, the wording that's used all through the Torah, the, the, through uh, from Exodus forward, it is about the beauty and the perfection of this land in the same way that he that he put Adam and Eve into the garden of Eden he's doing the same he's got a new garden for a new people there's not just two people now there are we don't know how many maybe a couple million and so he's going to move them into the land and that land has the same kinds of qualities properties and potential that Eden had and then he's going to give these people charge over that land because he's created out of this covenant, he's creating a people for himself, a people who know him in a way no nation in earth knows him because he has revealed himself to that nation in Egypt. He revealed himself beginning with Abraham and moving forward from there, but also in Egypt when, he, when the plagues come. And then now at Sinai, when he makes the covenant with them. And then after they break the covenant with him, he now has a different kind of revelation. It's not that he's a different God. It's just you saw the power of God, the judgment of God in the covenant because there are rules and laws and there's penalties for breaking those. And that Hebrew word is din, justice. And, it, and, and so there's two principles that coexist alongside one another, and that's din, justice, and hesed, mercy, love, steadfast love loving kindness. Those two things exist together. And so at Sinai, in the giving of the covenant in Exodus 20 and going forward from there, what you see is the power of God, the justice of God. That's the reason when Moses comes down, sees the sin, he breaks the, the uh, tablets. And the, and the reason he breaks the tablets is he is essentially annulling the covenant because if that covenant stands, then no one lives. And so he breaks the law, literally just breaks the law in order that God's judgments won't be poured out on the people. And so then he goes back and says, let me plead with God. Let me make atonement with God for the sin that's here. Let's see if he'll forgive. I mean, Moses, I think, really honestly did not know. He hadn't experienced that kind of hesed love, that kind of mercy for sin. So he goes back and he does this, and then he, God says he'll forgive, and then Moses says, let me see your glory. And that's when God proclaims his glory, and he proclaims these things that we call the 13 attributes of divine mercy. So in Judaism, what you'll get is Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So he's saying, I will sing of the, of the steadfast love. I will sing of the heavens of the Lord forever. 
For I said, Hesed will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. So the, the foundation of the world is Hesed, the steadfast love of God that existed from the beginning of creation all the way through to Jesus. And so when, with Jesus, we see the ultimate expression of the Hesed of God, the steadfast love of God. Because what we're told in Revelation is, is that Jesus was slain either for or from the foundation of the world. So God's plan all the way from the beginning going forward was that Jesus would come. That's Revelation 13, 8, by the way. So it's the plan was always that. So the foundation of the world is Hesed. The foundation of the world is Jesus. It's, it, it is God's love for a wayward people, a people who do not keep steadfast love with Him. And it doesn't matter in some ways because He says, my steadfast love is enough. It doesn't have to be requited. My steadfast love doesn't change for those who are created in my image. And then he brings one who bears the perfect image himself. God made man into the world in order that the world might be saved through his sacrifice, but that sacrifice was planned and done, it says, from the foundation of the world. God always knew. He knew what we would do. He trusted us anyway. He gave it to us anyway. He gave us his name that we might proclaim it all over the earth in spite of the fact that we will continue to sin. We will continue to fail him. We will continue to be unfaithful. We will also be unfaithful in the way we proclaim him, either in word or in deed. We will not be perfect witnesses to him. And yet he trusted us with everything. Everything that he created, the stuff that, that came out of the overflow of his hesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, that, he said, I'm going to give to you. And then he's watched us over all these millennia destroy his good earth, destroy one another. destroy When we destroy one another, we are destroying the image of God in another. And we can destroy each other in many ways, right? We can destroy each other verbally. We can destroy each other by murder like, like uh, Cain did. There's all kinds of ways that we undertake to destroy one another and to destroy his good creation. And yet, in spite of all that, his steadfast love gives us Jesus slain from the foundation of the world. I don't know if you know this. There's a, a, a place in Jerusalem now, under the Dome of the Rock, that many believe was the original place where the Holy of Holies was. And under the Holy of Holies, so right under the, the table which would have had the Ark of the Covenant on it, and they say it's exactly the same size as the Holy of Holies. It's, it's exactly, the, the, the perimeter would be exactly the same as the, the perimeter of the Holy of Holies itself is a stone. And that stone is called the foundation stone. And it's not the foundation for the temple that it's talking about. It's the foundation of the world because the Jewish belief is that that stone was the first thing in creation, that he threw this thing into the sea and it came up from the sea. And from there, the pillars, the foundations of the world are laid and everything comes forward from there. In addition to that, it's the place, they say, where Adam... Cain, Abel, and Noah all offered sacrifices to God. They say it's also on the mountain at the place where the binding of Isaac took place when Abraham took him to the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to God where God provided a ram instead. 
It's also the place, according to Jewish tradition, that King David, when he purchased a threshing floor owned by Aruna the Jebusite, which is a Jerusalemite, it's believed that it was on this rock that he offered the sacrifice mentioned in the verse in thanksgiving for having done that. He wanted to construct a permanent temple there, but because he had been a man of war, God said no, and he left it to his son Solomon, who completed it later. So there's this idea all through everything that there is a foundation stone of the world. And where is it? It's directly under the Ark of the Covenant. What is in the Ark of the Covenant? And what does that place represent? That place represents the mercy seat of God. It's the place where God comes to judge his people. And the judgments are sealed in the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets of the law resided. So it was God's footstool. And so you've got angels over the top of the ark, sealing the covenant, guarding the covenant, guarding the the Torah, which is the word of life. Well, those same cherubim are also found earlier in Scripture. Where is that? Well, it's in Genesis 3. They guard with flaming swords the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It's an important place, the Holy of Holies. Now, that's all superseded in Jesus. Jesus says that this temple will no longer stand, and it does not stand because there's a greater love. There's a greater mercy. There's been a sacrifice to end all sacrifices that's been made, and it was made by Jesus on that cross when he was pierced for our transgressions. We've been healed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been restored. We have been brought into covenant through his blood. He is the foundation stone. He's the foundation stone, not only of our faith, but I said, as Revelation says, he was slain from the foundation of the world. He is the foundation stone of creation. The foundation stone of creation is Jesus. It's the mercy and the love of God that's there right from the beginning. I want to tell you one other thing. There's one other name the foundation stone has. And here's the reason why. There's a hole in that foundation stone. There's a small hole in the foundation stone, and the Muslims who now control that area say that below that is the well of souls. That's not a Christian or a Jew- Jewish belief, but there's a, there's a hole in that stone. And because of that, the, there's a second name besides the foundation stone, and it is the pierced stone, the stone that's been pierced. Couldn't be any more apropos than that when you realize Jesus is the foundation stone, but he is the foundation stone who was pierced for our iniquities. And so the reason that Hesed, steadfast love, has to be there from the beginning and has to be the operative principle of creation is because of us. God knew what we would do and who we would become. And because of that, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt, his Hesed love, steadfast love, is the principle of creation built into the very creation itself in order that later could be revealed in the person of Jesus, in the sacrifice of Jesus, the complete love of God for his people that that rather than us dying, he takes it on himself. He takes all our sins in order that we might take on life. He takes on death that we might have eternal life. And then, gloriously, three days later, he is resurrected from the dead so that we might know 
forever and ever that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. It was finished that day on the cross when the foundation stone was pierced for us and life was given to us. That is the hesed of all creation that begins everything. The principle of creation is the love of God. When we get that right, then we'll begin to accept everything as gift. We'll begin to then live into the idea of of grateful and joyful worship. We'll begin to live into grateful and joyful stewardship. We'll be more thoughtful about the way we steward everything in our lives. But more than everything else that we steward, the earth, our our funds, all that kind of stuff. There's two other great stewardships that have to be done first and foremost before we even think about all that. And if we don't get this right, then we don't get anything right. That first stewardship is returning love to the one who gave us life. It's being thankful for the life we've been given and, and living from gratitude in all that we do. Gratitude and worship and service of the one who gave us this life. And the second thing is we have to love those who are created in his image. And that's why when Jesus is asked what the great commandment is, he says, it's this. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is Deuteronomy 6, and and to love one another. And he says the second is like unto it. And the reason that second is like unto it is very simple. And that's because in loving your neighbor... You're loving those created in the image of God. So another way of loving God is loving those created in the image of God. And so this hesed has to become part of our DNA. We have to accept that, acknowledge that, and then push that forward into the world. And so over the next couple of weeks, we want to talk about what does that look like? What does it mean to love your neighbor? How does that play out in our lives? Jesus had a lot to say about it, but we're also going to look at some Jewish tradition. But but the principle that I want you to hold on to tightly right now is the idea of that, that the loving kindness, the steadfast, uh, eternal covenant love of God is what drove him to create this world. And we are the recipients of that steadfast, hesed love. We're stewards of it as well. Not just recipients, we're stewards. We're responsible for showing the world what that hesed looks like. The world that doesn't know him can only know what hesed looks like from us. How are we doing with that? Have a great week. We'll be back next week.